You may have heard the phrase, in fact, you could probably finish this phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Whatever that means, at least probably in part, you've found yourself saying that when you traveled abroad. If you've ever been to another country and you're exposed to something different, something new, we understand at least it means when traveling in a foreign land, adjust to the customs of the people that are there, adjust to a foreign culture. And sometimes those adjustments, they're a little bit weird. Sometimes they're a little bit funny. I remember several years ago, 2019, when I was on a a missions partnership trip to Russia, some interesting adjustments we had to make. And we'd gotten to the place where uh, we had had our our fill of Russian food, nothing against that, but we just had our fill. And uh, we wanted a good burger. Just wanted uh, some food that felt familiar, a good, good burger, a Coke, some fries. So we went out, we went down the road, we found a restaurant. Thankfully, there were a lot of burger places there. And uh, we found a restaurant, sat down. You would have felt like you were in a normal restaurant in Charlotte. We sat down, uh, table service, had a good time. We were pretty tired from jet lag and just looking forward to enjoying a good burger together, a group of us there pastors. And everything uh, seemed familiar. We ordered our burgers, our fries, our Coke, thinking this is going to be a familiar meal. And when the waiter brought out our burgers, he sat next to us something interesting. I looked at it, and it was, it was a pair of black latex gloves for each of us. So we kind of looked at these, and we're like, all right, what are these for? And uh, so we asked the, the waiter, like, hey, what are these for? And he looked at us confused, and was like, uh, you put them on? And and, uh, and one of the guys at our table thought it was a prank. It was like, are you pranking us? Like, we're foreigners. You're just trying to prank us. Like, is this a joke? And then we look around and we realize everyone in the restaurant has on latex gloves eating hamburgers and french fries. And we're like, okay, this, I guess this is what we're doing. And he's like, yeah, he explains to us. The waiter explains, well, you don't need utensils or napkins. Like, you just have these latex gloves. So at that point, we were all in on that. We thought that was awesome. Uh, it being delirious from jet lag made it an even more hilarious moment. We thought this was great. We'll put our latex gloves on. We were probably the obnoxious foreign travelers because we're taking pictures of one another with our gloves on, eating our hamburger, <laughs> sending it back to our families, right? So occasionally I still even get a text from one of those brothers who he'll just be here at home and he'll send us a picture of himself at his dining room table with latex gloves on eating a burger saying, guys, just enjoying a hamburger, we loved that moment, right? Even if it felt a little bit strange to us as a, a foreigner, and even if it was clear in that moment that we were in a foreign land, uh, it was a cultural adjustment that we made away from home. Now, consider that this metaphor of, of living in a foreign land, it's used throughout the Bible to talk about what it's meant to live like the Christian life in this world. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, he exhorts Christians to live like sojourners, travelers, those passing through, those passing through a foreign land, living as strangers. The Apostle Paul points out that this earth, for Christians, it's not our home. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. We're passing through. This life is but for a moment. There is a life that is yet to come. For those who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, there's eternal life with Christ forever in heaven. For those who've Put their faith in Jesus. You've probably heard this phrase, we live in the world, but we're not to be of it. We're passing through on our way to glory. And until that day, we're called to strive by the grace of God to walk in holiness, 
The Lord is holy, and He calls us, and He provides for us to walk in holiness. So therefore, for Christians, we must guard against cultural adjustments. We must guard against getting used to the values of this present world, living like this present world, living for the the values of this present world. Rather, we should live in a world that we don't really belong to. We should seek God's help to live faithfully in a foreign land. As we look at Genesis chapter 47 this morning, we see that the people of Israel, they've relocated to a foreign land, to to Egypt. And in this foreign land, they're called to live faithfully, to be distinct in their lives, to live as God's chosen ones, as holy people. As we make our way through this whole chapter, 47 this morning, which Tim just read for us, I want us to see this main point. If you're taking notes, you can write this main point down. Remember God's promise and live faithfully in a foreign land. Remember God's promise and live faithfully in a foreign land. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Genesis chapter 47. So the best way to stay engaged this morning is just to follow along as we make our way through chapter 47. Uh, If you need to use that pew Bible in front of you, grab that pew Bible. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. A little bit of context. So if you're new to our church, it's easy to jump in this morning, but we've been going through Genesis for quite some time. And last week in chapter 46, we saw that, that Jacob and Joseph, they were reunited as the whole family of Israel traveled from the promised land of Canaan down to Egypt. And this wasn't going to be a short trip or a, a short stay. It was the actual like relocation of the entire family to this foreign land of Egypt. Now, God had promised to their ancestor, Abraham, to make them into a great nation. But we saw in the last chapter, there was a new detail to this promise. God's plan was to do this in the nation of Egypt. He was going to make them into a great nation in Egypt. He promised his presence would be with them always, that he would go down with them to Egypt, and that eventually he himself would bring them back to the land of Canaan one day. But for now... We're at in 47, and really for hundreds of years after this in the story of the Bible, they would be in Egypt. And this chapter shows us how God brought prosperity to his people Israel while they were in Egypt. So where we pick up in chapter 47, they need to be established in a foreign land. They need to have land given to them, a place to live, ultimately that they would live faithfully to God during their stay in Egypt. As we make our way through this chapter, I want to break this up into three parts. That's our outline this morning. Three ways we can live faithfully in a foreign land. We're going to consider three ways we can live faithfully in a foreign land. The first way we see in verses 1 through 12, seek to bless others. Verses 1 through 12, seek to bless others. Well, Jacob and his entire family, they're now in Egypt, and they would need Pharaoh's permission to remain. So they were foreign visitors during a time of crisis, during a a famine. And while Pharaoh had previously offered to give them land in Egypt and invited them to come to Egypt as a place to dwell, he could change his mind. I mean, he was the Pharaoh. He could really do whatever it was he pleased. If he let them stay, 
he would decide where they would be. So he could assign them to a city and say, you're going to live here. Here's the job that you are going to do. But we saw at the end of chapter 46 that Joseph had gone before them to prepare a place for them. He had a plan. He wanted them to live in this place called Goshen. And we see here in the first six verses of chapter 47 the outworking of this plan. We see in verse 1, Joseph's shrewd plan continues on. He kind of drops the hint and tells Pharaoh there in verse 1, hey, my family's already in Goshen. Here's where they're at. And then he chooses five of his brothers to go before Pharaoh, and they give the ask. They specifically ask to dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, and why this interest in the land of Goshen? I mean, was that like the really hot real estate there in Egypt during that time? Was that the place everyone wanted to live and they were just trying to have the end through Pharaoh? Well, no. This was actually like a secluded piece of fertile land. It would have been far away from the cities of Egypt. In fact, Goshen, it was kind of the, on the northernmost part, the northeasternmost part of the nation of Egypt, closest to the land of Canaan, the promised land. It's actually the closest piece there. But they could be far away from the city, meaning far away from the Egyptian influence and culture. They, needed, they were going there with a purpose, a plan. They were going there to multiply and grow as a nation just as God had promised them. Now, we saw from the last chapter that because the Egyptians tended to have a disdain for shepherds, they could probably get this. They could live separated from the Egyptians, separated from pagan worship and idolatry there in Egypt. So it was a strategic place to settle in the family and to multiply as a nation. Now we see in verses 5 and 6, not only does Pharaoh grant them this request to live in Goshen, but he also offers a royal position to the members of the family to be in charge of his livestock, which sounds a lot like how God gave Joseph favor in Potiphar's house when he first came to Egypt, and then later on in the entire house of Pharaoh. So the people of Israel, they receive favor. And notice in verse 11, they're even given this land eventually as a possession. That's their land, a possession. So they wouldn't merely be sojourners. The plan wasn't to stay there, but God's plan was for them to be there 400 years and eventually bring them back. But that 400 years, starting off here, he gives them this land as a possession. The picture working The picture here, the plan worked. They got the best of the land. In God's providence, the people of Israel, they will spend these hard years of famine in a fertile land, favored in a favored position. Joseph's pain and his suffering all those years in Egypt, it wasn't wasted. All the hardship he went through in Potiphar's house and being sent to prison, being away from his family, that was painful. It was suffering. His brothers intended to do him evil, but God was at work in his providence the whole time to do good. His pain was not wasted. God had a purpose for his suffering there in Egypt. Well, things went well with the brothers facing Pharaoh. And so next up, Joseph brings his father, Jacob, to face Pharaoh. That's what we see in verses 7 through 12. These two come face to face. And here's the scene. The Pharaoh of Egypt Likely the most powerful ruler alive at that time. Powerful, wealthy, royal. He came face to face with an old, tired man. Jacob. These two face to face. World superpower, old, tired man fleeing from a famine in his homeland with his family. 
He even presents himself to Pharaoh in their conversation down in verse 9, saying that he's had a hard life, saying few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. He had God's promise, and he still had a hard life. That's how it is for Christians too. Our hope is not in this present world. Our hope is not in the comfort and safety and security that can be found in this world. This whole chapter is basically saying, hey, comfort and security and safety and salvation is not found in Egypt and all of its wealth and its resources and its leadership, found in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scene here, these two, they meet face to face. And who would you guess would be the one to give a blessing. Usually it's, it's the stronger bless the weak. Right? The stronger, that's just what we think naturally. Strong people, they bless weak people. Strong people take care of weak people. But here the opposite happens. Jacob doesn't come in and bow down to Pharaoh. He blesses him. The weak blesses the strong. See, this happens twice, kind of to, to emphasize what is, is happening here, down in verse 10, he blesses Pharaoh a second time. Well, what is this blessing? We don't get specific details here. It may have been something like a, a prayer for peace and prosperity. But this blessing recognized that Pharaoh and Egypt would be blessed by God through the people of Israel. Their presence in the land would be a blessing to the people of Egypt. Now, this points us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which we covered a long time ago in our study, but God promised back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Pharaoh was blessing the people of Israel, allowing them to come in for for refuge. God had promised, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will bless the nations through Abraham, and here we see Jacob blessing Pharaoh, the leader of a nation outside of Israel. So in other words, it's a glimpse, the beginning of fulfillment, the seed of Abraham blessing the nations. And and notice here again, the one who appeared to be weak blessed the one who appeared to be strong. But things aren't always as they appear. Consider the real picture here that while Pharaoh held the most powerful position in the world. Jacob held the most powerful promise. He had a promise from God. The presence of God, the Almighty, the Creator, to be with him, that was for him, that would make him and his descendants into a great nation that would multiply and bless all the nations of the earth. God's blessing would come to the nations through one who appeared to be weak. And Christian, does that theme sound familiar to you? God's blessing coming to the nations through one who appeared to be weak. As the Bible unfolds, we find this repeated theme that God blesses the nations by the weak, saving the strong. That's what we see in, in Jesus' coming, that nations ultimately will find true salvation, meaning forgiveness of your sin against God, the nations will find salvation through a crucified Savior, Jesus. But by one who, when he came down to earth, his plan was to die. 
He wasn't taken captive and taken by surprise. His story wasn't one of a, a life tragically cut short. Jesus came to die, to suffer, willingly to lay his life down. A crucified Savior is what Israel was waiting for all these years. A crucified Savior is what the world needed most. They may have wanted one who appeared to have political power, who, who could overthrow uh, the Roman occupation of that time there in the first century. What they got instead is what they needed most. A crucified Savior through his death and resurrection would bring about salvation from God's wrath and judgment for our sin against him. You see, the, the Apostle Paul noted in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, salvation from your sins through a crucified Savior Make no mistake, it seems foolish to the world around us. It seems absurd. Many people think it's absurd to say, well, God's going to judge me for my sin? You're, you're telling me that I can do the best I can and try to, live, try to be a nice person, and God's going to judge me for my, and I'm going to go to hell one day? Most people will hear that and think that's absurd. You're telling me Jesus is the only way to God? That sounds absurd to the natural man. For many of us Christians here, before you put your faith in Christ, your testimony might have been that. You may have thought, this sounds absurd, unnecessary, extreme. The gospel, not something that you need. You might have felt comfortable in yourself and in your own moral righteousness. But by God's grace, he opened up your eyes to see the truth about yourself. That you're sinful, that you're in need of a Savior. And he opened up your eyes to see the truth about Jesus, that he is truly God and truly Man, that salvation is found only in him through his death and his resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has brought blessing to the nations by sending Jesus, who appeared to be weak when he came, and to many today still see him to be weak. But God sent him to save the world. He willingly laid down his life to die on the cross. The power of his salvation seen on the third day. Who else gets up from the dead to never die again? No one. He proved he is who he said he was. Truly God. Truly man. There's never been anyone like him. That was a glimpse of who he was. And while many reject him, this side of his second coming, make no mistake, he will return one day and every eye will see his glory. Every ear will hear he is the King of kings. And there's a chance now, this side of that day, to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your sin, to know wisdom from God and power that comes from His throne, to know salvation, dying of famine, terrible thing. But the worst thing that can happen to anyone is to die in your sins. 
If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that can change today. We would love to talk with you more about this hope found in Jesus. Talk to one of our members around you. I say this every week. Talk to any of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Well, let's consider a second way we live faithfully in a foreign land. That's what we see in verses 13 through 26. Seek the salvation of others. Verses 13 through 26, seek the salvation of others. The people of Israel, they're settled into their possession of land. The famine grows more and more severe. Again, I've heard scholars compare Egypt to the ark. Right? They got into Egypt kind of like God's people got into the ark back in the days of Noah. And here comes the, the famine. It's growing more severe. We see in verse 13, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And this section is where we see God's wisdom that, that came to Joseph to give him this wise planning to store up food in the seven plentiful years that would save both Israel and Egypt. So they're in the thick of this seven years of famine. Food is running out. The only reason there will be salvation, it's not because of Joseph's wisdom, it's because of God. God saved them. Apart from God, there would be no food. God came and appeared in a dream, and he, he, he helped Joseph. He guided him, gave him this prophecy of what would indeed come true these seven years of famine. There's nothing to eat. And so we see desperate measures here in this section being taken by the Egyptians in order to get food. Now, when we read through this section, when you heard Pastor Tim read, read through this just a moment ago, it may not read well to our modern ears. You might, you might read through this and think, okay, it seems like Joseph is capitalizing on their desperate situation. It depends on your modern ears. Some of you might think, well, sounds like communism. It, it, just different things might come into our minds as, as we read this. But you might think, okay, how does this seem like kind and compassionate? This almost seems like price gouging after a hurricane like raising the gas prices, or the stories we saw in 2020, people that were hawking all the hand sanitizer and selling them on eBay for $250, all right? Like, this just seems like you're taking advantage of people's vulnerable situation. But let's look closely. That's not what's happening here. Let's look closely, is what we see in this text, and try to avoid looking at this merely through a modern cultural lens. The basics of what we see are something of value is being exchanged for food. So this is an exchange, Something of value being exchanged for food. First, in verses 13 through 14, money being exchanged for food. You will do that today. Likely in another hour, you'll be doing that, exchanging your money for food, right? Nothing weird about that. What do you do when all the money's gone? Well, they don't have credit cards back then. They couldn't go to a bank and get a loan. So you start bartering your goods, right? So they sell off their livestock. That doesn't seem too odd. You're bartering your goods, verses 15 through 17. But then finally, in verses 18 through 26, the Egyptians offered their land. That doesn't seem that weird either. Okay, you're kind of like liquidating your assets in order to get food. I mean, this is food. This is in order to survive. What good is land if you're going to die? So they're selling off their land. But then finally, they sell off themselves as servants in exchange for food. Now, again, what we see here is an exchange of goods. This isn't the government seizing goods. It's an exchange it's not food being distributed for free. It's an exchange. It's also important to notice the people of Egypt don't expect the food for free. In verse 19, they come with an offer, buy us and our land for food. 
which again, that's likely the most striking part of this section to a modern ear is that the Egyptians offer themselves as servants, right? From the text, let's be clear what this isn't. This is not man-stealing. This is not race-based shadow slavery like what we saw in the Atlantic African slave trade. That's not what this is, to, to be clear. Man-stealing is forbidden both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Exodus 21.16 and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Man-stealing and what happened in race-based shadow slavery, clearly evil in the sight of God, clearly forbidden by God in the Bible. All right? that, that's not what's happening here, though. What we see here is a type of indentured servitude, like a, like a bond servant. Potentially, this was temporary. We don't, we don't get all the details here. But the arrangement presented here does not violate Old Testament law. We see later in Old Testament law. And while Moses doesn't offer, like in most parts, he, he's narrating history. He's describing what's happening. So he's, he's not offering moral commentary here. You can get clues. How is he presenting this? It's not being presented in a way that Joseph's actions are being morally condemned. Notice how Joseph treats the people once the land became Pharaoh's, right? So that they are turned into tenant farmers, almost like a, a serfdom, yet they get to retain the vast majority of their harvest to survive. So this, this exchange ends up benefiting both parties. In verses 23 through 24, we see that 20% of the harvest goes to Pharaoh. So again, that doesn't seem like extortion or an unjust deal. Not to get you grumpy here, but many of you will pay more than that to the IRS here in a few months. Joseph lets the Egyptians keep 80% of the harvest. The result? Food to live. Food for them to survive. Food to feed their little ones. And then finally, look at their response in verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants. That's not a cry of oppression like what we'll see later on in Egypt. This is a cry of thanksgiving. The Egyptians thank Joseph as their Savior. He saved their lives. The, the picture here, again, they're being saved. And the picture here as well, the people of Israel prospering and gaining while the people of Egypt are losing. This reveals the highlight of this whole section, I think. Notice who saved who here. Did strong Egypt save weak, fleeing Israel? No, Israel saved Egypt. Joseph saved Egypt. The wisdom that Joseph had was a wisdom he received, a wisdom from God, a wisdom from above, a wisdom from God that brought salvation the picture here of salvation and blessing is found in the God of Abraham. In the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is salvation, not in the power of Egypt. Salvation did not come through the riches and power of Egypt. Those riches and power, it proved to fail. When they needed them most, they were gone. They were not there. It couldn't save them. Salvation, the message here, salvation comes through God alone. Salvation for sin, what we need most it comes through God alone. It doesn't come through your own wisdom. It doesn't come through your own riches. It doesn't come through your own best 
efforts. Salvation has come through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, we need to remember this truth that we see here. We live in a wealthy city. We do. And even if you don't necessarily feel wealthy, you can compare us to other places in America and certainly other places across the world. We live in a very wealthy place. It is nice here. It is comfortable here. We have pretty much everything that we want here. It's even 80 degrees in November here. It's, 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 a, it's a great place to be. And there's a temptation, I think, that we can face as Christians to, to, to get so comfortable in the world, so settled in, that we start to look for satisfaction in this present world. We start to look for security in this present world instead of found in, in God and Christ. You see, this message here of Israel, the land of Egypt, is that security is not found in the wealth of this passing world. And we need to be reminded of that. Security is not found in wealth. It's not found in our achievement. Security is not found in what we accomplish in life academically or professionally or even what we think we accomplish in the home as a parent. Security is not found in our possessions. I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, you know, we were just talking about the last two years. I said, you know, the last sermon series we completed before March of 2020. For those of you here, you remember which one that was? Ecclesiastes. In God's providence, we studied that book together as, as, as a living illustration was about to play out in our lives. That everything you thought you could trust in, your life, your schedule, your job, the power of government, the power of science, the power of medicine, the power of your own even thoughts to be able to navigate the way through something, it, it kind of just all failed and gave us a living illustration of the truth found in Ecclesiastes, that everything around us, even human wisdom, is, it's empty. It's, it's not e enough. And we don't have to live depressed or cynical in light of that reality. Rather, we're told, fear God, keep His commandments, turn to Him, trust Him and His Word. Well, Christian, I, I wonder how you're starting to live comfortably in this world and in a way that is decreasing your appetite for the Lord. You know, we've got two episodes of God's people blessing the world here in the first part of this chapter. Jacob, the people of God, they were settling in a foreign land. And I think we find helpful perspective and application to consider in our own lives. Who are we trusting in? What are we building our lives upon? One good way to evaluate that, just look at how you spend your time. If we value God, we will be busy about the things of God. Worldly people are busy with worldly things. And godly people are busy about the things of God. If you're busy about things of God, you'll be in the Bible. Again, not, not saying that there won't be times you struggle, but ultimately your aim is going to be to be in God's Word, to pray to Him. How can you have a deep relationship with God if you never talk to Him in prayer? How can you have a deep relationship with God if the only time that you open up your Bible is on Sunday morning? How can you have a deep relationship with God apart from God's people and the fellowship and the encouragement that comes in the life of the local church? There's certainly lots of things for us to evaluate in ourselves, but also consider this example that we have here that faithful people bless those around them and seek their salvation. How are you seeking to bless those around you? How are you seeking their salvation? 
meaning proclaiming the gospel to them. If God answered your prayers from this past week, who would get saved this week? Who would come to know Jesus? Dad? Mom? Your neighbor? Have you, have you given up believing that they actually could be saved? You've just kind of gotten discouraged and thrown in the towel? Well, likely many of you will see your loved ones here in a few weeks. The holidays are coming up. Lots of opportunities to pray, opportunities to lovingly and joyfully proclaim. If we want to live faithfully in a foreign land, let's be those who seek to bless others, who seek their salvation, who stand as those who point to salvation found in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Well, finally, in verses 27 through 31, we see a third way to live faithfully in a foreign land. Seek the promises of God. Seek the promises of God. Well, in the midst of famine, God's kindness is so clear in this chapter. Sometimes we may just think God's kindness is when things are going favorably and all around us seems peaceful, but here's Here's famine and chaos and disorder, and here's God providing for them in, in some special ways. And in fact, you see a contrast between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt here. The people of Egypt, they're enslaved, servants. The people of Israel, the people of promise, they're prospering. Look at verse 27. We read, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God's kindness, being fruitful and multiplying, those words sound familiar likely to you if you've been spending time in Genesis with us. They go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 28, often referred to as the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that was a command back in chapter 1. With God's covenant with Abraham, this shows up again in Genesis 12 and 15 as a promise. Chapter 1, command, Chapter 12, 15, promise, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. But here in chapter 47, verse 27, this isn't a command, it's not a promise, it's fulfillment. It's a description of what God by His grace is actually doing, it's actually happening. The people of Israel, the seed of Abraham is multiplying, they're being fruitful. This is the beginning of fulfillment. Just as God had promised he is growing them into a great nation in all places in Egypt, a people who will be fruitful, multiply, and bless the nations. God's kindness to his people is so evident in this chapter. Notice in verse 28 that, that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. That number is significant. If you do the math here, Joseph was taken away from Jacob and his household, if you remember, when he was 17. He was sold into slavery, away from the family. In God's kindness, Jacob gets another 17 years with his son Joseph. In these final verses, in verses 29 through 31, Jacob, he makes arrangements for his death. He's seeking the promises of God, clinging to them even as he faces death. He will die in Egypt. He doesn't want to be buried there, though. Well, why? Why doesn't he want to be buried? I mean, what does it matter? We're talking about bones in the ground. Why does he not want to be buried in, in Egypt? In fact, he, he asked Joseph to take an oath. So this is really important. He takes him, he asks him to take an oath to swear to him to not bury him in Egypt. We even see an allusion 
back to Genesis 24 when Abraham was sending his servant out to find a bride for Isaac. We see same language used there. He had him, he had him swear by placing his hand under his thigh, which was likely, again, a reference to circumcision, to God's promise. Was he planned for his death? He had his mind on the promise of God. He had settled into Egypt, but he wasn't satisfied there. He was looking to God's promise. At verse 29, he says, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob settled into Egypt. He's not at home there. He's not at home in Egypt. He's saying, don't leave me here. Don't leave my body here. He wanted to be buried back in the promised land of Canaan with his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac, at the tomb there at Machpelah. Well, central to the promise here. So he's God's heart fixed on the promised land. Central to God's promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the land, the promised land. And even though Jacob would die, not having received that promise of that land, he had his heart set on that promise. He had his eyes on the promise. When you have your heart set on promise, when you have your eyes set on promise, that's what it means to walk by faith. You can either trust in the promises of this fleeting world or in the promises of God. Don't bury me in Egypt. Don't leave me here. This is not my home. My home is with God. My faith is in His promise. He was walking by faith, settled, but not satisfied. What about you, Christian? Are you so familiar with this present world that it no longer feels foreign? We've heard, we've heard some great messages recently. Thankful for, for Pastor Jonathan and the elder address we had on a Sunday night recently about living in holiness as God's people. And I think this speaks exactly to the same issue. Are we so familiar with this world that it no longer feels foreign? That we've become desensitized to a world that, that praises and prizes so much that's opposed to Christ. I was walking with a college student recently on the campus at UNC Charlotte. And I said, man, this is a tough place to walk with the Lord. A lot of things that God's Word condemns and that God says very clearly that if you practice these things, practice sexual immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They are prized college campus. They're praised. They're esteemed. They're sought after. They're celebrated on Monday mornings. But isn't all this world like that? I mean, it may stand out in more places, some than others. Isn't your street like that? Aren't you tempted in your own heart to be prizing and praising the, the values of the world rather than what God's done for us in Christ? I thank God for Sunday mornings. There's no place I'd rather be right now than right here with you all looking at the book of Genesis. I mean that sincerely. There's no place I would rather be right now than right here looking at God's Word, locking arms, marching on to heaven, helping each other in this victory march that Christ has already secured and accomplished through His death on the cross. His work is finished. 
Nothing needs to be added to it. We look back, we trust in it, we push forward in faith, trusting what is yet to come, looking to the promise. Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. The end of the age will come. We will die and be with Christ forever if we've repented of our sin and put our faith with Him, or He will return before we die, which I certainly hope happens. We have much to look forward to. And we have much to encourage each other in. Because just as Jacob lamented earlier on in the passage, we have the promise, but life is still hard. Life is still difficult. Walking with God isn't easy. We, we suffer, suffer setbacks. We may struggle with obedience. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in God and His providence that what even seems like setbacks in our lives are part of His plan to do us good and bring us safely home to himself. Well, when in Charlotte, do not do as the Charlotteans do. When in Charlotte, that sounds kind of corny, do as Jesus would do. When in Charlotte, live faithfully as unto the Lord. Let's, let's guard one another that we don't become so familiar with the ways of this world, and it no longer feel foreign. And what a gift and a privilege God has given us in the presence of Christ and in the presence of others who know Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to walk in this victory march together. This earth is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Nothing can change that if you put your faith in Jesus. And may we be reminded of the comfort we find in Jesus. Whoever prays for his disciples, what we see here in John 17, 15. I leave you with this. Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Let's pray.